0: This episode was recorded via Zoom, and we had some troubles with the background noise while recording, so we apologize for the lowered sound quality.
1: Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we are pleased to be joined by Mona Harb and Sami Atala to talk us through what can be called the triple Crisis of Lebanon. Mona is a professor of urban studies and politics at the American University of Beirut. She is also the co-founder and research lead at the Beirut Urban Lab, a collaborative and interdisciplinary research space. The lab produces scholarship on urbanization by documenting and analyzing ongoing transformation processes in Lebanon and its region's natural and built environments. Sami is the founding director of the newly started The Policy Initiative in Beirut. He is also the former director of the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. He led several policy studies on youth social identity and political engagement, electoral behavior, political and social sectarianism, and the role of municipalities in dealing with the refugee crisis. This episode will discuss the triple crises in Lebanon and what this means for people's everyday lives. By triple crisis, we mean the country's economic instabilities, the political situation, and the aftermath of the Beirut explosion in August 2020. How is this reflected in Lebanese societies, and what does this mean for public space? We hope that you find this episode interesting, and if you do, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. So thank you, Mona and Sammy, for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about the situation in Lebanon and how it helps us to both understand local governance and how that helps us to understand the situation today that that you're facing. As many people might know, Lebanon has always had waves of crisis, but probably the last two years have been particularly difficult. Some people call it a triple crisis. They think about the port explosion that took place in August of 2020 that not only killed hundreds of people and had the cost of people losing their homes and the violent explosion, but also really took a toll on the healthcare system and the economy and infrastructure. And then was followed and related to a political crisis, right? The government resigning, and then 13 months of basic political stalemate trying to get a new government put into power and into place. And then combined with the most recent, wave of crisis which is the economic crisis right which again very much interrelated with the first two but really has taken a toll on Lebanon to the extent that the World Bank Lebanon economic monitor has said is likely to rank in the top 10 economic crises since the mid 19th century which is is quite depressing to put it mildly so i wanted to start just by asking you to help us understand what that looks like in Lebanon It's one thing to read these statistics and to talk about this from an abstract point of view, and quite a different thing to experience it and know what it means for daily lives. So if you could start by just giving a sense of what it's meant for the Lebanese people.
0: First, thank you so much for hosting us. It's a pleasure to be with you on this podcast. Indeed, as you have very well summarized the situation, Lebanon is facing a multifaceted crisis, and I would say unparalleled, unprecedented on so many fronts. So this is a country that actually ended the civil war 30 years ago under some sort of power sharing agreement. And in fact, what we're witnessing now, all the problems that have been shelved, I would say, for so many years, just exploded all at once in the last three years. So we start with definitely a financial economic crisis, and that by itself, by the way, it's like triple crisis within that only. And what I mean by that is that you have a currency crisis where the lira has depreciated significantly. And so you see people falling under poverty in no time. And now poverty rate has reached from 70, 30% of the population to almost 80% of the population. Do you see that on a daily basis on the streets where people are actually asking for money or support. You see all the services actually collapsing in terms of access to electricity or the cost of electricity or generation uh, of power generation. You see it in, in your daily lives in so many ways. But just to cut it sort of uh, shortly, in addition to the currency crisis, we have a balance of payment crisis and we have a, a banking crisis where you can't even access your money or all your savings. So, so that's only in the realm or of economics and finance, in parallel to that, and obviously very much connected to that, is the political crisis, which has even preceded the, the, the collapse of the government. In fact, we've been having political crises for many years, leading and led to several protests from as early as 2008. And every three years, we've had some protests for people expressing their displeasure or even anger at the political elite. But this time, where they both coalesced the political crises with the economic and finance, financial crises,
2: Sammy mentioned, people cannot access their savings anymore in the banks, or the savings they had have lost their value. So we have a major impact on uh, various categories of people, and this has transformed completely, I would say, the social structure of the country and even its livelihoods, the daily livelihoods of people. Compared with that is the uh, port blast of August uh, 4, 2020, that hit a very crucial part of the capital city, neighborhoods where a lot of economic activities used to happen and where a lot of small and medium enterprises used to flourish that were completely impacted by the blast where people lost homes and livelihoods and businesses and people had to leave. So this had also impact beyond the immediate neighborhoods that are adjacent to the court, that it had impact on the city as a whole, and I would say even on the country, because the explosion of the court is very much a criminal explosion because it is due to the callousness of that ruling elite that has been accumulating extractive practices, capturing rent, hollowing our public institutions of their role. In, in many ways, The explosion of the port happened because of this unaccountable political class and uh, even public administration, which is supposed to oversee the port operations, and the lack of an independent judiciary system that would hold anyone accountable. And up till today, we can see in the investigation of of the port explosion that there has been no actual indictments, even calling people to be questioned is uh, becoming as if it's a scandalous uh, affair. Nobody is following up with these politicians when, when they get accused or requested for investigation, right? Mm-hmm. They're being asked to, to
0: show up for investigation. They even fought back against the judge, the yep. prosecutor, right? You know, they're actually halting uh, the work of the investigator.
2: And I would say there's an interesting pattern to be done with the banking sector and that Ponzi scheme they put in place over years that was also very closely, intimately associated to to aid that was flowing into the country that allowed that system also to have a a longer lifespan and that where today you see that there also are escaping any accountability system where you would Then start to imagine a beginning of a new era for Lebanon. So we're still very much in this phase where, you know, there's a dead corpse and people are beating the hell out of it and trying to snatch pieces out of it, rather than trying to see how to salvage that corpse and to move to a stage of recovery that is more viable, just, inclusive. It's it's a situation that people also feel very much. People know that there's impunity, lack of justice. People are organizing to demand justice, to, to ask for justice, especially the victims of the, of the port blast have organized in several associations with different agendas trying to pressure the judiciary for justice, to seek justice for their beloved ones uh, that they lost in that blast. So, I mean, more than 200 people were killed and the thousands were injured and people lost their homes so the scale of that explosion is quite big and the repercussions of it are still felt today we're not even talking about people with disabilities and people who had to repair homes under very dire economic circumstances where people had no money and they needed to borrow or they needed to to find ways to repair their homes. A lot of people got displaced for the end time. I'm thinking about migrant workers, refugees living in those areas, a lot of labor because we're in the areas close to the port. So a lot of relatively cheap labor lives in some of these neighborhoods. And of course, these are people who have no papers, so they cannot receive any compensation. They're invisible to the NGO sector. So so the most vulnerable people got even more impoverished they had to suffer even additional layers of vulnerability and exclusion there's no tracking really of where they are because they had to leave the area very quickly to get a shelter simply and uh, people who have better means also were displaced and got into their secondary homes or family homes or kin homes and many of them are so traumatized that they refuse to come back to these areas today And I think it's a sort of a microcosm of the city as a whole, that sense of uh, generalized impunity that uh, rules our lives as Lebanese people or dwellers in Lebanon, that, that sense of helplessness and despair, especially after uprisings in 2019, where, you know, we did all the textbook demands of what should be done when, in terms of mobilization, the whole country was mobilized, it was decentralized. Everybody was expressing their, profound anger against that system that, uh, that is oppressive and that benefits a few and where most of people cannot uh, benefit from just basic services, access to basic services and dignity. And even with everything, this was ignored, repressed. And shoved under the rug with uh, narratives that uh, are totally unconvincing, I would say, from that political elite, and promises of reform that uh, I mean, we know very well, for having heard them for years, that they're not going to be executed. So, well, what what you say, expression about picking the can, so maybe mm, you can yeah,
0: go I mean, back yeah, to I,
2: that, so also in the financial so. policy and the financial reform plan there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think as one of the things. I think so many of these problems have been just avoided since as early as 1997. So it's 25 years almost, and the political establishment has refused to undertake any serious reforms, or any reforms for that matter. You know, so they're always postponing, taking the can, postponing the solution. Exogenous shocks that happened back in 2008 with the financial crisis that helped Lebanon, in fact you know, and then all these conferences, right? Where Lebanon goes to Paris for uh, with donors to seek financial support. And these are signals that the whole economy is not working, the economic model is not delivering, but the, the political elite have managed to buy time and get the support from, the, from even the international community all the way to the collapse that we're witnessing. So indeed, uh, and just to add one last thing, the port explosion, I think, sealed the fate of many people on many fronts. A lot of people, I think, packed their bags and left, like some estimates around 250,000 Lebanese have left in the last year, huge impact, right? For for a country as small as Lebanon and the medium term and long term uh, repercussion on, you know, human capital and the larger socioeconomic fabric.
1: Actually, I want to pick up on that, exactly that point, because I was struck by how many people I knew or knew of who were leaving Lebanon. And it led me to wondering how much, when we think about the change of the social fabric, how much is that also affecting the resources within the country? Most of the people who I know who've left were relatively well off, were highly educated, were able to leave. That doesn't mean they're the only segment of the population that's leaving, right? So one question is, To what extent is the segment of the population that's leaving reflective of the population at whole, or is it that it's really changing the social fabric of Lebanon, and what does that mean for the ability of the people to make demands, the ability to kind of push back and the possibilities moving forward?
0: I think, I mean, obviously we don't have all the data or the statistics to be able to back it up, but I think from what we see and hear a lot of the middle class, a lot of the skilled people are leaving or have left. We're talking about doctors, we're talking about nurses, teachers, engineers. Right? These are the people who constitute the, the middle class. Now, what's the relationship? I always think about it, right, between that ability and uh, to leave versus being stuck and trying to push for reform. Right? They're not unrelated. So once people have the choice to exit to what extent they become less attached to the, to the homeland. And some maybe actually not willing to push for reforms or willing to accept the status quo or even feel helplessness in the sense that they cannot even do anything, or even when they were in Lebanon. So, so that is sort of a paradox, paradox in the sense that on one hand, it's great that people have the ticket out of a system that has collapsed because otherwise their standard of living will drop significantly. But yet this has such serious, in my opinion, political repressions for reform and for change because there's no more discretion. In fact, these people leave and then they'll send their money back to their families through remittances, which in fact cheat them from total collapse into poverty. So that is not necessarily in favor or could lead to political change. In fact, it could accommodate the status quo or the political status quo in the country. Yeah, I
2: largely agree with that assessment. I would say also uh, the 2019 uprisings and the way they were received and also thwarted in many ways or ignored and shoved under the rug were also a signal to many who participated in these uprisings that the sectarian political system is very, very strong, that we're dealing with a machine that is very advanced and very developed and the opposition groups are still far from being able to make I would say a significant and durable dent. Now the opposition groups are getting more organized, they're maturing, uh, there are some interesting coalitions appearing among them but they're also I mean people who have to think about their own livelihoods, the livelihood of their families and I think what happened with the with the blast and the the lack of responsiveness of that political class, and that profound, I would say, uh, ability to cling on to that defunct system made many realize that, that it's not worth fighting for anymore. And if they had the choice to leave, and we go back to who has the social capital or the networks to actually leave, I would say among this group of people, a large group made the choice to leave because also they had to make decisions vis-a-vis their, uh, the schooling of their kids, or the health of a family member, or securing income for their parents who suddenly lost all their savings. So they needed to be a source of income for a larger family. So many people use the word exile when they tell you of their decision to leave, that they feel that they were forced into exile, which is... Uh, As far as we're concerned, I would say this is the first time we experienced this. There was a lot of peculiarly uncanny references to the Civil War, where we had conversations with our parents about the departures that happened in the mid-1980s, where families were sort of forcefully pushed to leave the country. And people were leaving with that same heartbreak, heartache were about leaving a place they don't want to leave, but they're being forced to leave because they have to secure income either to themselves or their larger family. The people who made the choice to stay, although they had the choice to leave, I don't know, I think there are not that many of these people around us, and these are mainly people who who were able to secure some income in what is referred to currently as fresh income, as fresh dollars, real money because the dollars that we had in the bank were transformed into a currency people refer to as dollars, like fake dollars that, that you can't really use. And if you had your savings in Lebanese Pound, it means almost that you've lost all your savings because of the devaluation. Now, there's a small sector of, I would say, people like in every crisis or disaster that benefits also from crisis and disaster, I'm thinking, of course of the generator operators the the people who uh, provide fuel at uh, black market rates or uh, gas at black market rate we also had a loss of basic goods for a period of time and there was a black market trade operating at exorbitant rates. so of course there are people making money out of the fair and the helplessness of people and the fact that some people have money and are ready to to pay a high price to get to their goods and not stand in queue or they need the medicine for a sick uh, individual, and they will pay for it if they have the money to do that. And there's, of course, the NGO sector, which is a big sector in Lebanon since a very long time. With the refugee crisis of the Syrians in 2011, that se- sector expanded. And I would say after the explosion, it had another life. The aid industry is pretty, pretty much alive. It's uh, a lot of money was dispersed to UN agencies and other INGOs and it's being dis- redistributed to national NGOs. You see that expertise industry operating and providing jobs to uh, some sectors of the population who are also very mobile, who move around, and who are able to still lead a good life. In the city, it's interesting. You see some neighborhoods where it's, it seems like these uh, foreign workers Prefer to live over others. So it's no longer Ashrafiye, it's more Badaru. Because Ashrafiye is a very strong uh, memory of the blast, and you see it as a material uh, symbol of, of what happened. You see a lot of uh, destruction and reconstruction, but the street life is not the same. So people have relocated to other areas, other, other neighborhoods in the city, namely. Badaru, and maybe a few pockets here and there where they're able to reconnect with their street life or a nightlife they were used to, and they're able to, to survive. I would say the context we're living in,
1: which is a very difficult daily context. That's extremely interesting. And I'm wondering how much is what we see inside Beirut the same as in the other parts of the country, and how much is it unique? Because some of these. I mean, the aid industry, it's always seemed to me, has been particularly centered in Beirut, not exclusively, but very largely centered there. And if we're thinking about the picture you're painting, how much of this is a Beirut picture and how much is it even to sort of other larger cities, Tripoli and other places? How, how do we understand that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I'll maybe start a little bit yeah. then, Sami can say more about also the, the municipal governance of these areas, I would say it's very Beirut-centric, of course. Beirut is, uh, in that sense, very much concentrating the flows of aid and of the diaspora. We should not forget that the uh, the Lebanese diaspora played a huge role, starting with the pandemic management phase uh, and supporting the Lebanese uh, through charity work and humanitarian support. But also in the aftermath of the blast, there was a lot of outpouring of aid from the Lebanese diaspora. So we see a big concentration, I would say, in Beirut, and uh, maybe it's immediate peripheries. So Bush Hamoud is an area which is technically outside of municipal Beirut, but it's an area that's also benefiting from flows of aid and support. Uh, the southern suburbs of Beirut are much more controlled by Hezbollah. Uh, and in that sense, because of the sanctions, the aid cannot flow into these areas and uh, they're pretty much sealed with the services of the party that are still operating. Uh, Outside, I would say, of the agglomeration of Beirut, people are much more left to their own devices, and hence they become dependent on sectarian groups. So the clientelistic model would take over, and I would say would be much more dominant. So uh, your link to the za'im is really what provides you with access to public goods or uh, private goods, depending on the ZA'im positioning in the public administration and their networks. And I I would say NGOs have some reach in major cities like Tripoli, Saida, Seoul, Zahle. And that's interesting because that happened with the service provision for the Syrian refugees. This is where they started. Because Syrian refugees were mostly housed, uh, outside of Beirut, or actually not mostly but they were quite distributed and many of them uh, chose to live close to the border areas i'm thinking about akkar and halba in the north hermel uh, and the, the beka in general so the proximity to the border was a relationship they they sought uh, and they wanted oh. and proximity also to agricultural areas where uh, possibilities of work happened or where they had social networks simply yeah. To, to provide services for these Syrian refugees, NGOs did open open satellite of their uh, offices in the Bekaa, specifically in Zahli, where you had a, a sort of a, a hub of all the NGOs located next to UNHCR in Tripoli. Mm-hmm. You had several NGOs as well. Halba grew, urbanized exponentially thanks to the NGO investment in renting offices, etc. So... Um, We didn't really follow what happened with that presence that Mm -hmm. geographic presence currently it would be interesting to see if they lost funding because of course now the predominant narrative in lebanon i just heard it against yesterday in a conversation is that Lebanese now are poorer than syrians so we should not aid syrians anymore so (laughs) syrians were being discriminated against since they moved here with like they're coming to take over the jobs of Lebanese and to take over the aid. So uh, I think uh, it would be interesting to see if aid is still Mm -hmm. going towards supporting Syrian refugee programs.
0: But in fact, I would sort of just to pick up on that, I think many Lebanese benefited from the presence of the Syrian refugees, right? And they don't want to acknowledge Mm that, but they have, uh, at least before the financial collapse, they were starting getting aid themselves. As a host community. And also, they have benefited from very cheap senior labor. Don't want to acknowledge that, but they benefited a lot from that. So, the people who actually suffered, and here are winners and losers, right, in the Lebanese community, were the Lebanese skilled or uh, Lebanese employers benefited from that labor the people who paid the price are the lebanese unskilled labor because now they were competing uh, with the syrians so uh, there was sort of dislocation here of some sort but still those even unskilled were started started getting aid or they were even sort of renting whatever they have for the syrians right through the un you know, whether you have a small tiny plot of land or a garage or what have you. Or Uh,
2: building on the roofs of their homes even, or uh, subdividing their own homes to provide, uh, to have a source of income.
0: Exactly. So, uh, but then the financial collapse basically had a, obviously affected everyone, right? And everyone almost sort of collapsed, the Syrians, the Lebanese, the Palestinian, refugees you know and obviously the middle class and even the upper class some people had to exit really to survive and then in these areas are outside beirut i think the effect as well is saying are just much uh, harder yeah and then you end up with these local governments and i will be happy to talk about this in due time but you know in terms of what their role is or, or could be but the situation is, is really m- much worse in the region and in beirut
1: So we have at least three different types of areas, right? So we have the Hezbollah sort of controlled areas, which have one sense of dynamics. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how they operate and how they're providing services and and that. And then these areas, the outlying areas, and then Beirut. I want to also ask a thought that went through my mind as you were talking, Mona. And you were talking about the Zayim, or the local leaders, and how their sectarian networks or sectarian based leadership really is instrumental in terms of people getting things and and the extent to which the ability to gain services and jobs and other kinds of daily living necessities is really driven by that. I think a lot of people would be listening to what you'd said earlier and the kinds of pressures, the kinds of collapse, the degrees of trauma really that a lot of Lebanese face and think to themselves what in the world keeps these leaders in power, right? I mean, that there's this, this notion of, okay, you've had people on the streets way back in 2000s, but certainly in 2019 very much, and you've had only a worsening of situation. How is it that these leaders survive? And I think that in some ways, your answer to this in terms of thinking about those local elites and their connections, and then the sectarian and confessional nature of the Lebanese system is really key in understanding why it's being, in some ways, is so resilient. I mean, it's not a resilience we might like, right? But it's definitely notable. And I just wanted to ask if you would agree with that assessment or if you think it's off base in any way.
2: I would agree with you, Alan, because I think, uh, unfortunately, what we've seen in the uprisings of 2019 was very much a very strong uh, sense of allegiance to these sectarian leaders despite perhaps very strong resentment against the system but there's something as a stronger power that makes you want to protect that sectarian allegiance because it provides you with actual very real services to you and to your families and a sense of uh, safety and security and i say here safety and security also thinking about a sense of meaning not only utilitarian returns there are also very strong uh, sense of belonging to that sectarian model or that sectarian, sectarian affiliation provides that structure of meanings to these individuals and their extended networks so when, when the uprisings were happening and when the slogan of everyone means everyone was adopted by the protesters there was a a big shift a big division in the ranks of the protesters by mostly the Shia groups who follow Hezbollah and Amal and who singled out their leaders as being not part of the everyone is everyone and that drift was, I would say, a big turning point in the protest. Because at some point, we, we were in the streets with crowds. I mean, we didn't know really who was who when we were in the streets. Mm-hmm. But at some point, when there, were, there was a speech by uh, Hassan Nasrallah that uh, categorized the protesters very clearly as having righteous demand, but asking people to withdraw from the street because the biggest Cause is being threatened, or I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Really, that sent a message to the people who are the constituents of Hezbollah and Amal that they need to withdraw from the street. And then there were very systematic attacks. I mean, violent attacks and destruction of the tents and the places of the protesters in downtown Beirut, but also elsewhere. And there were even killings in. uh, in a shoe by people, and people got uh, very heavily policed and repressed and sent to prison. So the violence and the repression became very acute, and it was very clear that the counter-revolution was taking over. And I would say when we saw that, we could not but acknowledge that the force of sectarianism and the constituents of I mean, the, the people in Lebanon who are still very dependent on sectarianism are still there, and they still form a very important part of the population and society, if we like it or we dislike it. They're here, and they maybe we can analyze it and say this they're hostage to the system. People, you know, would anecdotally say they're brainwashed. Scholars would explain this in much more eva- elaborate ways, but of course the system is deeply embedded it has a very long history these people have been in power for three decades if not more they've taken so many institutions public private cso's their networks are so diverse i would say in terms of service delivery that it's really hard if you're part of that to want to have the opportunity to exit where would you go I mean, the possibility of leaving the clientelistic network is it's very costly. And uh, if you are part of these communities, you, you know that it's very costly. Lebanon is not the first system that has a clientelistic model, and we know how it operates. I'm saying this and thinking very much of the work of Lisa Wuddin on Syria, of other scholars on Africa, where we see the, how, how deeply entrenched the system operates and how it captures people
0: in it. So I mean, as what I said, you know, in 2019 there was a window, a window that opened that says this is what Lebanon could look like without a sectarian or confessional system. It was a beautiful moment to see people across the whole country rising up. And then, you know, this that moment terrified. Political establishment because this is a moment where they had to reverse and stop and uh, and they systematically did that and I think Corona or the COVID nineteen was a big help you know what I mean because it shut down all the protests and what have you and uh, they were saved by that. What I find interesting is that here political leaders, as you said, as you said, um, Alan, in terms of how are they held accountable? I think something very interesting happened last week, where the former Prime Minister Hariri resigned from politics. You probably heard that. So that tells you that he's actually being held accountable by regional powers, and regional powers move them out of politics, not domestic powers, not his constituency. You know what I mean? So these people, the leaders, are actually accountable to regional actors, rather than to their own constituency at home.
1: I want to actually think a little bit more, because you mentioned who's holding them accountable, but Hariri, of course, one can argue, okay, that's a national leader. I want to go back to this local level and think about, are there opportunities out there? Are there differences at the local level? To what extent can we expect that the local leaders, whether we're talking about municipal councils or we're talking about local leaders sort of more generally, can actually step in and do anything?
2: At the municipal level, as Sami and I—I mean—we always wanted to believe that municipal councils would be uh, an interesting scale for political change, and that you know, because we have a law that gives a lot of prerogatives to municipal council, and we had regular local elections held, we thought that this could open up possibilities for organized groups, opposition groups, to to enter municipal councils and use that as a platform to implement uh, beginnings of uh, policies for reform, for change that will lead to more structural change perhaps, change from below rather than change from above or from the middle. I'm afraid to say that we often, when we have discussions with Sami, we wrote this book about sort of advocating for decentralization and this was something we strongly believed in for a long time, and we gave lectures on, and we pushed for in our work. You know, when we started seeing what's happening at the scale of municipalities in Lebanon in terms of governance, we started having another conversation where it's like, oh my god, these guys are recentralizing the system, Uh, clientelism is operating through Mm -hmm. municipal councils, they're using uh, the municipality for all the wrong reasons. And uh, we got really held back and we're like, we are, we're going to write another book against decentralization (laughs) (laughs) that says decentralization should not happen in places of, I don't know, sectarian power sharing. Or before we have an actually effective and accountable state and an effective judiciary system. Once we have this, we can decentralize, but let's not decentralize when the center is so corrupt and so hollowed out. So you know, we had these conversations and we never pushed for that book to happen. Maybe it will happen at some point. But in a nutshell, the answer is that at the municipal level, we have very, very few good stories that happen. And if they happen, there are one good story and there are 10 bad stories next to them. There are some places that make use of opportunities better than others or that attempt to do that. but. Interestingly, you see that the national level takes it over. I mean, co-ops that local attempt. So even if the municipal council is trying to build some autonomy, they do depend on a patron who's going to tell them, yes, but not to that extent. I'm here and I can let you do that. We saw this in Saida. we saw this in Seoul, uh, especially in the big municipalities where stakes are high when it comes to real estate, to coastal development, where land values you know suppose an interesting rent that would come out of it so we municipalities are operating very much to extract even more rent from land transactions from uh, building and zoning laws that they have uh, oversight on so uh, there are some places that i would say are more interesting than others especially when they choose to ally to private sector and NGOs. You see that there are interesting coalitions that happen around some projects. You see that a community center got built here, or a garden got built there, or a library here. But there are really very, very small case studies. And I would say in the port explosion, again, we're talking about Beirut, but the municipality of Beirut is glaringly absent from any response. Of even coordinating the work of NGOs on the ground or, or even providing data to uh, people working on the ground or just being an interlocutor of sorts with international organizations. The void is huge when you see a, a city like Beirut, which is one of the richest municipalities because it has so much income and revenues of taxes and it received so many projects of aid over the years it doesn't even have a, a disaster response plan although it had a loan from the world bank to de- to develop that response plan nobody knows where it is when you ask about it so it's bad news at the level of municipal governance i would say we see much more interesting case studies at the level of uh, civil society organization especially the more decentralized one, the the ones operating outside of the city. So very interesting initiatives related to agricultural uh, uh, economies, self-sufficiency, cooperatives, even farmers' cooperatives taking place. You know, but there are really very small vignettes that uh, that exists. So we do have that. Uh, we have a very vibrant, I would say, civil society. Some of it is more progressive than others. Others are, are quite conformist, but some of it has, is experimenting with radical interventions that one can document and get inspired from. But I don't know. I've reached a stage where I used... To, I mean, I used to be very inspired by this, but at this stage, um, for me, it's like a jock in a bucket of what, what this implies, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, Mona's assessment. And I think if I can just maybe add two points, uh, decentralization has been killed um, on two levels. One is by the central government and/slash institutional and arrangement, and two, by local governments themselves. I would say on the first front, I would say, uh, look, we are such a small country level, right? 10,452 kilometers square, has a population of 5 million, and we have more than 1,000 municipalities. The best way to kill decentralization is to let to so fragment. many towns exactly set up so many local governments, so many municipalities. And one of the studies that we did uh, many years ago, but out of the 1,000 plus, 400 had no employees, not even one single employee. So and another 400 had one. Clearly, you actually fragment them by letting them mushroom all over the place. You know, and you say, You want decentralization? We'll give it to you. Overkill. Overkill, exactly. <laughs> And also, not to talk about the, the transfer system, and you know, from the center to the local government, and the problems with that. So, re- refusing to give them money on time and so forth, uh, that has actually impacted local governments from the central government's perspective. Now, but then, hey, uh, when you go down to local government and see, okay, what's going on, right? Uh, you, you see another side of the problem, uh, and that's also problematic because it's like assuming even if the government, central government hasn't done anything bad, would they be able to deliver the services that we, we love? And one of the things, as I already said, some of them are too small, have such a very low tax base, and in fact, we must to survive on their own. But then also, I think uh, what, what I find problematic is that a lot of them, there's no accountability system within it. So you end up with a mayor who's able, especially if he has the support of political parties, you know, uh, he becomes almost a real estate agent, where he giving licenses, permits, you know, building and so forth, where they can extract rents, and this is what we is talking about. Um, and then if you talk to them about uh, development, in a more recent encounter with local governments in the last few months, when I asked a number of mayors, uh, what's their understanding of development, right? or what are the development plans? And I was frankly shocked by how they define development. Some thought development was building a municipal building or even a conference hall or a really, telephone or, or, or a conference hall with restaurants that overlooks the park. I'm like, so, so it's terrifying. Because, but, but then if you think about it, it's very much in the right, the same thinking of a real estate agent trying to build real estate and make money and extract resources rather than... And give the contract to their friends. And exactly. And the contracts are often given to friends and families and engineers that, that are very close to them and what have you. In another instance, I was when I was meeting a number of mayors in a, small, in a town or in an area, I was like, would you consider... Having public transportation that is, you know, we can serve the larger communities. And one of the actions was, oh no, we can't. And I was like, why, why can't you? And he said, because, oh, because of the mafia. I was like, what mafia exactly is The transportation mafia. And then something else arises here is that their passivity. Oh, we're so passive, we cannot do anything because there's a mafia here, or the central government is not giving us money. But there's much more you can do even without money. You can be much more creative in thinking about coordinating, bringing the private sector, bringing the the local communities, trying to find solutions, communicating with the central government, with the ministries. Very few do that. And I remember before the crisis, when and I also, I remember we went to Jazin. I also spoke to Jazin. was an interesting case, for example. But there are very small or few cases that whereby we saw mayors thinking outside the box and define the system. Now, after the crisis, whatever they do, is, as I said, it's a drop in the bucket. Right? It's, the problem is way more than can be solved by these local governments that already have very limited resources. And now their money is, has just obviously dwindled because of the, the currency crisis. So now what we're going to see is a lot of bankrupt municipalities, bankrupt fiscal. Already some are bankrupt morally. And Some others, in, in the sense, you know, bankrupt in the terms of any ideas of what to do uh, in the yeah. first place. Uh, but uh, there are very few, but just stick to add on a bit of a positive note, some are working on solar system, for example, in Sur, one of the municipalities, trying because to deal with the uh, electricity sacrifices. So the thing of putting you know, on solar panels, trying to provide that to, to, to their towns. That's an interesting case.
2: You made me think very much about, I mean, we don't really have public servants, nor at the local level scale or at the central scale Mm. where, you know, people feel that they're in charge of uh, serving a larger community and protecting a public good. That sense is Mm. pretty much absent, I would say, from all public institutions at any level we dealt with. There are some... I would say, exceptions that are still there, but we don't really find them much in municipalities. We found them in in some institutions we're working with, and this is where, you know, as people in research centers, where we feel we could make a difference, is by building the capacity of these people in public institutions who are still there to serve a public good. And we feel that, you know, this is as far as we're concerned, at least in the Baywood Urban Lab, this is where our energy is going and where our efforts are going, is to identify these allies and to uh, empower them to try to rebuild that sense of public good and the public and the public institution, especially in this period of time where I think there's a strong consensus that we really need to rebuild a state that we we cannot just operate as CSOs and NGOs and research centers in silos that, we do what we can do, but we really need to, to rebuild public institutions somewhere. It might seem very mm-hmm. classic as a dimension. And at the same time, you know, we have this conversation where we're like, should we do that? Or we should focus more on city governance and more decentralized systems of governance? We don't know for sure. So I, th- I think what's been happening is more these experiments. With wherever we find a public servant who's interested in public service we become best friends with with this person and we're like, let's try to build something together. So we've been working with the Public Corporation for Housing and the Urban Lab to try because there's a real possibility now with international donors to think about an affordable housing policy in relation to post-blast urban recovery. We've been also working on preserving urban heritage with the UNESCO and the Director General of Antiquities was in charge of uh, cultural heritage in Beirut to try to uh, safeguard clusters, but not only physical buildings, think about them more in relation to local economy, housing and public space. So there are some efforts on that front that are interesting, and I would say there are some uh, opportunities of alliance between civil society organizations, public agents and international donors where you feel you may be able to institutionalize certain processes so uh, as far as we are concerned from an urban perspective this is what we've been doing i think sami is trying to do the same with local governments with less possibilities perhaps than uh, than uh, what we've been finding be, uh, also because uh, the local governments you've been working with ha- haven't been quite responsive mm-hmm. it's been hard to find allies among them i guess
0: yeah no no it's uh, it's very sad because in the north for example we're working with the union of municipalities and there's so much infighting among the municipalities the ones in in, in the more central maten which is much richer area but we see no vision whatsoever in the in the, in the south uh, it's much very much captured by uh, movement so you see a very strong presence of party politics there so uh within that you see some variations some experiments in solar panels and energy and what have you yeah it's just it hasn't been uh, up to our up to our expectations of what we want local governments to do and implement and take the lead in providing public services than what we've been, what i striving for, uh, and hoping that we do so. Uh, but yeah, in uh,
1: absence. It's interesting because, in a sense, both of your answers or both of your visions focus around trying to improve the situation through the mechanism of the state, at least partly, right, and by strengthening it. And of course, in Lebanon, that's both, perhaps, even among the Middle East, one of the countries that needs strengthening of the state the most. And so you can entirely understand that and where perhaps you could even make an argument that trying to work with the actors outside of it only would continue to weaken it, right? So it's a, it's a very hard yeah. one because I can entirely see what you mean in terms of the weakness of the municipalities and the extent to which that just makes it very difficult to find allies and to find vision. But mm-hmm. I wish you both the very best of luck because I know you're working extremely hard and, and on what are really, really important issues, not just to the scholarly community and those of us who are listening and and caring from the outside, but really to Lebanese and a lot of people who have suffered from decades, as you said, of really poor governance and and the need to have a stronger state that acts like a state. Um, So all the very best in that. Thank you very much, Ellen,
2: for for this. It's not easy to keep the stamina to do that, I must say. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm not surprised. But thank you both so, so much. much. Thank you so much for having having us. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and again want to thank the Swedish Research Council for its ongoing support. We also invite you to like, share, and subscribe to Governance Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts. And please feel free to come to our website and drop us a note with suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to hear Mona talk more about governance issues in the Middle East, we recommend that you check out the MELG podcast, produced and presented by the scholarly journal Middle East Law and Governance.